Revelation 6, verse 9 says, And when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer, until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. I looked, and he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood. And the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it's shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? And Father, we humbly pause and ask as always for the grace and the supernatural help of your Holy Spirit to have an ear to hear what your spirit is trying to say to this part of your church assembled today through this particular portion of your word. So Lord, as an act of worship now, we offer our heart and soul and mind, prepare us and speak to us, Lord, by your spirit's ministry, we ask expectantly in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, resisting authority, whether that be good authority or whether that also be bad and evil authority, is typically a very dangerous thing. Whether it is good authority that's being resisted or whether it is bad authority that's being resisted, it's not only dangerous, but it typically results in loss and in great suffering. And I believe the passage in front of us today indicates that as we now get more description given to us here in chapter 6 of the events that will be unfolding here upon earth during this time that we often refer to as the tribulation period, this seven-year period that human history is destined to go through. It's on God's calendar. It's unavoidable where the judgment of God will be poured out upon this earth. We see in this passage two things very clearly. One, we see the tribulation saints, who we'll talk more about that in a moment. We see the tribulation saints who resisting the tyrannical and evil dictatorship of the Antichrist, the world ruler at that time, and living opposed to those who hate Jesus and those who hate the word of God, that because of their resistance of that evil authority, they end up being killed and murdered as a result of resisting that evil dictatorship. We also see in the same passage here, the rest of humanity that is on the earth during the time of the tribulation as well, who have not come to Christ in their desperation, but further harden their hearts 
in rebellion against God and in their pride and their resistance, resisting the Lord to the last hour, refusing to repent and seek salvation. And that results in suffering tremendously for their arrogance and their rebellion and resistance against the authority of God. And they themselves find themselves suffering greatly as the result. Now, again, remember our backdrop as we come into our verses this morning. John has been watching at this point now in the vision he's receiving from the Lord. He's been watching the events that are unfolding upon the earth after the church. You and I have been removed, taken up into heaven, and this seven-year period of tribulation begins to unfold here upon the planet against those who have been left behind for the rejection of Jesus. And the Lord, as we've watched, has began now opening these seven seals on this scroll that we saw back in chapter 5 that Jesus came forward and took as the one worthy to open this scroll with the seven seals. And as he's been opening each one of these seals, the events that are described apparently within the scroll are now beginning to be executed now upon the earth. And each time he opens another seal, there's another event that transpires, and humanity is suffering now the judgment of God. We saw in our last study together in the first four seals, the clear evidence of the Holy Spirit's restraining influence through the church. Again, keep in mind, this doesn't mean the Holy Spirit has disappeared from his work among the planet. But the main predominant power of the Holy Spirit's ministry right now, while we're on the planet, the church, is operating through the church. And in some way, 2 Thessalonians describes that when the church is removed, that the restrainer, the Holy Spirit working through the church as us as salt and light on this planet, as representatives for the Lord, that that restraining force against evil and ungodliness and wickedness that's dwelling in the hearts of humanity has now been removed, and that restraint has been taken away, and as the result of that, nothing is any longer holding back sin and evil and wickedness, and the world begins to suffer horrible things in tremendous ways like never before because nothing is holding back anything. So we saw in those first four seals things like worldwide deception will take place in a way like never before, satanic deception, severe violence, financial hardship, and the collapsing of economies, and supply issues, and starvation, as well as global sickness and death. We saw the first seal represented the coming forth of the Antichrist, who goes forth in peaceful deception as a global leader, takes a global position to rule over the world, a one-world economy, a one-world government, a one-world religion, makes everyone peaceful and happy, and then partway through shows his true satanic colors and becomes a tyrannical satanic dictator. The second seal we saw as that was broken open, it says that peace was taken from the earth, and mankind began to brutally commit violent acts against one another in a way like never before, bloodshed through murder in cities and violent warfare taking place. The third seal being broken brought the economic collapse and, and, and economies falling apart all over the globe and food shortages and starvation. And then the fourth and final seal we saw was that releasing of just global worldwide sickness. Uh, things that would make things like the Spanish flu and the bubonic plague and COVID-19 look like child's play. 
as all of a sudden global illness went all throughout the earth in a way like never before. And remember, that resulted in, the Bible told us, 25% of the world's population at that time all dying as the result of those events taking place. And as we said, there's about 8 billion people on the globe, so imagine 2 billion people, the widespread death. And imagine trying to keep up with that, the burying of bodies, I mean, the, the incredible carnage that is going to happen, and that was only in those first four seals. We now come to the fifth seal here in verse 9. Look at it with me. It says, and when Jesus opened the fifth seal... John says, very unique, this one, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Verse 11 says, then a white robe was given to each of them. And it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. So what we find described here in this fifth seal is a description of what will be the fate of what I'm using the term, these tribulation saints will have experienced in the horrible time they will go through. Now, when I use the term tribulation saints, what I'm referring to, and we'll see more of this as we go through our study in the book of Revelation, is those people who have rejected Jesus Christ in this time period now, and then the church has been raptured and removed, but yet seeing and experiencing what begins to happen as the tribulation starts to unfold. That relative that you witnessed to that told you no, 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 no to Jesus. That coworker who you tried to share Christ with and who have heard things about the gospel. All those who have been left behind and understand when the tribulation begins to unfold, things will begin to click in certain people's hearts and minds. There are now millions of human beings who call themselves Christians. They've all disappeared off of this planet. What happened to them? Where did they go? All these Christians who were telling us these things about Jesus and were saying, one day, man, I'm not going to show up Monday morning. Or one day in the middle of Monday morning, I'm going to get the rest of the week off. <laughs> and you'll be taking over my work. <laughs> and all millions of Christians disappearing from the planet. And then on top of it, all the horrific suffering as we've been looking at in our last study Imagine the desperation of people's hearts as they're seeking deliverance and they're being broken and humbled and they're enduring all these hardships on the planet. And some people during that time we see in the study of Revelation, there will be a great spiritual revival yet still an awakening that will happen on this planet. And there will be souls that are saved and people will come to Christ even in the midst of that last seven-year period of tribulation when the judgment of the Lord is being poured out. Now, this select remnant who will get saved in the midst of the chaos of the day of the Lord, who refused Jesus in the prior time period and, in a sense, missed the opportunity of the safe and early escape plan that you and I will benefit from, who know Christ now, being removed before the wrath of God is poured out on the planet— they are now stuck 
in this seven-year period of tribulation and forced to endure through all of this hardship, enduring the horrible conditions which we have began learning about and we will see all the way from chapter 6 through 18. And because they have come into a relationship with Christ then by waiting and not until the tribulation period itself has started, they will not have an easy experience whatsoever being Christians during that time. It will be incredibly painful and difficult in ways like unimaginable before. We think certain types of persecution against Christians now are intense, or what happened in the days of the Roman Empire was intense. Again, that will be child's play as in comparison to what they will be enduring as the result of coming to Christ after the tribulation has began and then trying to remain more faithful, faithful to Jesus and to the word of God they, the Bible says here, are actually going to find themselves being killed, murdered for their commitment to Christ and the word of God in that time. And this is what John seems to be describing clearly here in verses 9 through 11, the painful experience that results for those getting saved after the tribulation has begun and the need to actually allow themselves to be put to death as the result of their commitment to Christ. He says there in verse 9, look at it, he says, I saw... Under the altar, the souls of those who were slain, that is, those who were put to death, their blood was shed, they were murdered. The imagery here is of the souls of these tribulation saints, these martyrs, like sacrifices. And notice John describes them or sees them in verse 9 here. He says, I saw the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He says, I saw their souls under the altar. Now, the imagery there comes from Leviticus chapter 4. Leviticus chapter 4 tells us that when the animal sacrifices were offered unto God, that the priest would pour out the blood of the sacrifices at the base or the bottom of the altar. So the imagery here, as much of Revelation pulls imagery from the rest of the Word of God, it's a picture of their souls under the altar. It's a picture of how these saints dwelling in heaven after their death upon the earth, it's a picture of how their lives ended in that they died in a sacrificial way, that they had to be willing to die and allow their life to be a sacrifice made unto God for their commitment to Christ. And that's the idea of their blood and their lives and souls being represented as under the altar in heaven. These are martyrs who are willing to offer up their lives in sacrifice and be slain and make a personal sacrifice of their own life in death in order to honor Jesus Christ and the word of God. And we now find them for a set period of time, these particular tribulation saints or tribulation martyrs, for the remainder of the seven-year period of tribulation, the Bible describes them here as their souls resting there in heaven, it seems, awaiting their ultimate resurrection body. Now, we know, as we've seen already before, all of the saints who've been raptured from the earth, who've been caught away and removed before the tribulation, in the rapture experience, we receive in that instant our resurrection body at that moment. It's a part of the process that happens. That was being celebrated, the redemption of the Lamb, around the throne of God we saw in chapter 5. But as for these specific saints, these tribulation saints, who don't get saved until that time period, it does seem in some way that they've been saved, they, they died for their faith, 
and that there is a period of time where their souls are there in heaven. They have some form of a heavenly body in some capacity, but they're still awaiting that ultimate resurrection body that you and I will have received and that this is something that they will not yet receive until after the tribulation is over and then Jesus returns and the kingdom age is set up which we see referred to in Revelation chapter 20. In fact, you'll notice similar language, Revelation 20, verse 4. Let me read it to you and listen to the similarity. It says this, Revelation 20, verse 4, Then I saw the souls of those who had beheaded, been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast, that is the Antichrist, or his image, and they had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands, and they then lived and reigned with Christ for that thousand-year kingdom age reign, even as you and I return with Jesus, Revelation 19 describes, after seven years of being safely tucked away, we come back with the Lord. These saints get the privilege as well to reign with the Lord for that thousand-year reign, the kingdom age on the earth. But again, the Bible seems to have a different experience for them at that point where they then receive their resurrection body and reign with Christ, just like you and I in our resurrection bodies will return with him and reign with him. And again, the language is very descriptive in a similar way. The souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and the word of God because they would not worship the Antichrist or his image and they would not receive the mark of the beast on their hand or their forehead during that time. And as the result, notice John makes it very evident, the Holy Spirit wants us to understand, verse 9, why these tribulation saints were killed. Why were they murdered? Verse 9, look at it. It says they were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. So they were murdered for the word of God. That is for their belief in the word of God as the inspired, authoritative, absolute truth of scripture that was one of the reasons because they took their stand upon that that they were killed and that was not acceptable so they lost their lives they were murdered because they stood upon the truth of god's word as well as the fact for their testimony that they held of their personal witness that jesus was their savior and lord and because they kept christ as savior and lord in their heart and in their testimony they lost their lives. Apparently, so meaningful to them was what they believed so firmly that they're willing to die for it. So firmly do they believe that Jesus is Lord and Savior, and they realize that they were wrong and completely messed up refusing Christ earlier, and so confident are they now in the Word of God, they're probably searching it daily, wondering, how much longer does this trib thing last? What's this Antichrist guy going to do next? But so confident and firmly do they believe in such things that they are willing to be killed, to be murdered, to be slain like a lamb. The Bible even says beheaded for their commitment to such things and their belief in those things. Look, let me just say, for those who refuse Jesus now and for those who reject God's word now, and you may hear this from time to time, you may be here this morning saying that, well, there you go. I just heard him say from the podium, from the word of God, that you can still get saved in the tribulation. So I am going to party up and live like a sinful wild man. I'll just wait to the tribulation, man. 
I'll just wait to the tribulation and whatever. I can take it. They'll just behead me then. I'm a courageous person. Let me just say to you this morning, you need to keep coming for the next, let's say, chapter 6 through 18 and understand what conditions are going to be like in the tribulation before you take that particular, if I could say very strongly, risk. Because let me say to you very candidly this morning, if you're hearing me and you're not saved yet or you're not living right with Christ, if you don't have the backbone to live for Jesus now, you think you're going to die for Jesus in the midst of the tribulation? If you're not willing to die to your own self-will and the sin that you love so much and your unwillingness to let Christ lead your life, then you be in control of your life. If you're not willing to do that now, it's just die to yourself. You think you're going to stand there with allegiance and say, I so love Jesus, cut off my head. You're, you're pretty presumptuous. That's pretty risky. That would be a bad investment, I would say, to take that risk. Not to mention, on top of that, there is no guarantee that you will believe then. Because the Bible makes it clear that will be a time period of great deception on the earth. Listen to what 2 Thessalonians 2 says. The coming of the lawless one, that's the Antichrist, will be in accordance with the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders, supernatural deception, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not believe the love of the truth, that they might be saved. That is, when they had a chance to be saved before Jesus came and got the church out of here. And because they refused, now they're in the midst of unrighteous deception. And the Bible says this, for this reason, God will send strong delusion so that they should believe the lie, that they may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So it is utterly foolish and very presumptuous, as well as tremendously risky to think, not only I'd be willing to die for Jesus then, because that's what you're signing up for, but to also think I'll take my chance when there is strong delusion and worldwide satanic deception in a way like never before, that you're going to be willing to believe because you may be completely so deceived that you will never believe. And then you will find yourself not only enduring the tribulation, but then on top of it as a consolation prize, you get the lake of fire forever. And so it's a very risky thing, though the Bible does teach many souls will be saved in the midst of the tribulation, and that's an act of God's mercy. And praise God for the mercy of that. It's an indication that his mercy is incredibly long-suffering, but boy, it is really a presumptuous idea to have a theology, oh, I'll just wait till then. No. As we look at what these tribulation saints are willing to undergo for Jesus and for the word of God to literally allow themselves to be slain and put to death in that time period, if nothing else, by way of applying something for ourselves, that should inspire us as the Lord's people now. As we endure, and we do, and we probably will to greater degrees, I believe, forms of persecution and hardship and suffering for being faithful to Jesus now in these last days. And there are going to be times as the days get darker and times get worse on this earth, leading up to the Lord taking us out of here, where persecution may get more difficult. And we may find ourselves having to choose, are we going to take a stand to honor Jesus when it's not popular? Or maybe it's even costly and risky. 
where there may become a great degree of suffering, literally, for standing for Jesus or saying that, no, I believe the truth of the word of God. Well, if you believe that, then we're not hiring you, we're hiring him. Okay, my God shall provide all of my needs. And there may be times where we may find ourselves having to take a stand for God's word and believe upon Jesus and honor Jesus, and we too may find ourselves experiencing degrees of suffering. The question is, are we willing to do that? Look, we've all, as Christians, been called to that to some degree in our assignment. 2 Timothy 3 says, all those who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. It's a Bible promise. It's not in the Bible promise books, because <laughs> nobody likes that one. But it is a Bible promise that if I'm going to live godly in Christ Jesus, I will suffer persecution. You know, sometimes we avoid a lot of persecution. We just don't want to really live for God as a Christian. We'll, we'll be as carnal or as quiet or as covered of a Christian. You know, we think we're on secret mission, and, and we try and hide that. But if you want to be a forthright, God-fearing, godly Christian, the Bible says if you live godly in Christ Jesus, you will suffer persecution in your family, in your job, in your life, in different ways. Philippians 1 says this to us, For you have not only been given the privilege of trusting in Christ, but also the privilege of suffering for him. Hard to imagine there's a privilege, but again, that's the idea. I experienced some of the suffering that my Lord did. It's that badge of honor, and we should be inspired as we look at what they'll endure to realize, man, I, I don't know if I'm ever going to go through that, and I hope I don't, but certainly I'm not right now. But Lord, help me to have a little bit of spiritual grit and to be willing to stand for Jesus and be bold to stand for the word of God when it's not popular, even though it may be difficult at times. Well, notice what these souls who are there in heaven who've been martyred for their faith are struggling with. Verse 10, look what it, is, 10, look what it says. They were crying out there in heaven, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you, or until you judge and avenge our blood, on those who dwell on the earth. So look what they're struggling with in the midst of their eternal existence right there. They're longing to see the wrongs done by sinful men in their rejection of God and their hatred for everything that is righteous to be answered for and to be punished in a just way. They call the Lord there in verse 10, holy and true. In other words, Jesus is pure and perfect in all of his ways. He is true in the sense that he's right and he always does what's correct. And so they say, Lord, you, you're pure and perfect. You're right. You're just. You're holy. So, Lord, we know that someday you're going to judge and avenge the wrong that's been done. But they say, how long, Lord, until you bring judgment and avenge, he says, our deaths upon those, look what he says, who are dwelling on the earth. So notice, those who had killed these saints who are now in heaven, they were dwelling on the earth, which indicates that these saints died as the result of being on the earth during the time of the tribulation. It's another indication that these aren't martyrs from hundreds of years ago in Christianity. These are people who are saying, those people down there on earth that killed us, when are you going to hold them accountable for that, Lord? When are you going to avenge our blood because they realize that he is a good judge. And look, we need to understand, if we want to call anyone in the judicial system a good judge, a good judge is someone who executes just judgments, 
right? If someone commits crimes, legitimate crimes that deserve a degree of punishment or judgment, and the judge, for whatever reason, excuses what they should be held accountable for, that's not a good judge. That's a corrupt judge, right? A good judge adequately with justice, he doesn't overpunish, but he properly punishes crime. He executes sentences in a just way. And Jesus and the Father who are going to bring judgment at a point of time, understand, are good, righteous in their judgment, and they must, because God is a good judge, he must judge properly. He must adequately and thoroughly bring about punishment in a proper way that needs to be exercised because that's proper. And they understand the Lord is loving and merciful. Absolutely. They certainly know he's loving and merciful. He saved them during the tribulation. They're not questioning <laughs> that the Lord's merciful. They're super excited that the Lord still had mercy in the midst of the tribulation to save them. So they're saying, but Lord, you're not only loving and merciful, your love and your mercy, it can't make you compromise your justice, righteousness, and holiness. So Lord, when are you going to avenge our blood for what they did to us? That they beheaded us, they murdered us. They... And, and look what they're told, very difficult what they have to hear. Verse 11, then a white robe was given to each of them. And it was said in response that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren, spiritual family, who would still be killed as they were, was completed. So they're told that the time was not yet, that they had to wait a little bit longer. And the reason they had to wait a little bit longer was there were more souls, because Jesus is merciful, that were still going to get saved until the end of that seven-year period of tribulation, wherever they were up there in the process. There were more souls that were still going to get saved in that final window of God's mercy, even in the midst of that, who were going to become servants of Christ and their spiritual brethren, their brothers and sisters in the Lord. And sadly, there was still more, the Bible says there, verse 11, who were going to be killed as they were. And the message comes, until that number of Christians are saved and then murdered on the planet, until that number's completed, things can't be taken care of that God would execute his judgment one time in a finalized way against those who had put to death these Christians who had put their trust in Christ. In the interim, we're told in verse 11 that to give them some consolation, they were, verse 11, given a white robe, it says, was given to each of them. Now take notice, they had to possess some form of a heavenly body to be able to put a robe on, right? So they may not have their resurrection, their ultimate glorified resurrection body, but they apparently have some type of a body to be able to put a white robe on. We know the white robe from prior chapters in Revelation represents a righteous and holy and pure standing before God. It's a robe of righteousness. It's a picture of, of being acceptable before God. So it assured their innocent condition and that they were fully acceptable in God's presence. And that was something to assure them. And notice that they were told to rest, it says, verse 11, a little while longer in that assurance. What assurance? Two things. One, to rest in the assurance that they were holy, righteous, forgiven, and cleansed, and they were acceptable before God. And that they did not have to worry about because they waited and then they went into part of the tribulation that somehow, oh man, 
we're not like those people who got saved before the rapture. We're like the second-class Christian citizens. Oh, no. And God says, no, you got the same white robe. You just rest in that. My forgiveness is my forgiveness. You're righteous in my sight, as well as resting in the fact that in time, when the time was right, God would judge properly and he would avenge the bloodshed that was brought against them as they were put to death for their Christian faith. Look, in application for our lives today, much of the same realities to some degree are true for us. As we all struggle, and let's be honest, we do, wondering at times when the Lord will judge evil and when the Lord will avenge wrong things that were done to us, we need to wait for God's proper time. We need to wait for the timetable that God has chosen to settle out wrongs, and in the interim, we should do the same thing. We should rest a little while longer until the time properly comes on God's timetable. And we should rest in the same two things. We should rest being thankful that we are robed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ and that we, by the grace of God, are acceptable in God's sight. That we have been forgiven, that we have eternal assurance, that our name is written in the book of life, and one of the things that we should rest in while we're struggling is realize, man, Thank goodness I can rest. I'm forgiven. I'm going to heaven, and this suffering on this physical earth is not going to last forever, and there's coming a time when I will be removed completely from the presence of sin. I've been set free from the power of sin. I've been set free from the penalty of sin, but I'm still dealing with the presence of sin as a Christian, as you are as well on this planet. And to be able to rest one day We'll be liberated from that. We'll be set free from that. That gives a rest to our soul. And the other thing we should rest in, like these tribulation saints, is knowing that one day a good righteous judge will judge and avenge all of the sinful acts on this planet, as well as, listen, folks, all of the wrong that has been done to you in your life. Whether it's because you're a Christian, whether it's because at a time you stood for Jesus and people were harsh to you because of that, because you stood for what was right to honor the Lord or the word of God, that that will be reconciled. Second Thessalonians 1 says this, Therefore, among God's churches, Paul says, we boast of your perseverance and faith in persecutions and trials that you're now enduring. He says this, all this, in other words, the suffering you're going through as a Christian for honoring Christ, all this is evidence that God's judgment is right. And as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. God is just, and he will pay back trouble to those who trouble you. Paul says in the book of Romans, Romans 12, repay no one evil for evil. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. Vengeance is mine, I will repay. Paul, it seems, as he was conducting his ministry, had something very painful very harsh, very cruel done to him. He was done very wrong by a man named Alexander the coppersmith. Second Timothy chapter four, Paul says this, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. And Paul said, may the Lord repay him according to his works. Again, he did something to Paul that was incredibly dirty, incredibly personal destructive to Paul's life and to Paul's ministry. And he said, you know what? That that guy really did some serious harm to me. And he says, I got a big brother, Jesus, 
and he's going to catch up with Alexander. And may the Lord repay him for what he did to me. Look, I can totally relate to that. You can as well. You know, those of whether you're a, you know, a big brother or even if you have the dynamic of being a father, right? <laughs> I mean, somebody messes with your kids. The, the anger, the wrath that would be, I mean, if somebody did, and, and look, at times we need to step back and kind of just realize sometimes you're God's son. You're God's daughter, you know, there have been times before where things have transpired and events have happened, and I've had Christians in my ear. Tony, you're going to let them do that? You need to, you need to. And look, I said, look, I actually am scared for them. Because I'm five foot six and 140 pounds soaking wet after putting on a little belly at the age I am now. And if somebody did something to one of my kids, yeah, call Zach or Ryan. That's probably the better idea. See, that's wisdom. <laughs> we timed that. That was perfect timing there, Jerry. Yeah. And again, God's a loving father. So God does something to you. God does something to, you know, I mean, if God, somebody does something to you, God's looking at you as a son or a daughter. We should be concerned for people who do wrong things to us because God loves his kids. And Jesus is a very faithful big brother who's not going to let his kids be you know, knocked around as well. And so, again, look, it's normal to struggle when evil things happen to us, but we must learn, like these tribulation saints had to hear, we have to learn to rest in faith and not let ourselves in our feelings and our thoughts and our experiences react or retaliate or seek revenge, whether indirectly or whether just consciously doing it in a direct way, we have to trust the Lord to come to our defense, and it is a choice in faith, and to deal with the wrongdoing in his way and time. And because he's a just judge, he will. And it's best for us to kind of refrain and to recognize that. And even as these tribulation saints, boy, they went through a time period of great darkness and deception and evil, and as a result, it became very, very dangerous and risky, and it cost them greatly to honor Jesus and to honor the word of God we have to be aware, folks, that as we move closer and further forward and times get darker in the world and times get more polluted, even among what calls itself the church, we have to recognize that standing to honor Jesus is going to become more essential at times to say, you know what? I don't answer to you. I answer to the Lord. And to stand upon the word of God is going to be essential, but do not be naive. It's going to get risky. There's going to be some cost attached to that. The question is, is are we willing to pay the cost and may God give us the grace and the courage by the power of the Holy Spirit to be bold when those times come? Well, verse 12, he describes then the sixth seal and what happened. He says, he then opened the sixth seal and behold, there was a great earthquake the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood. And the stars of heaven fell to the earth as the fig drops its late figs when it's shaken by a mighty wind. And then the sky receded as a scroll when it's rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. So notice the sixth seal is open, and it produces, we might say, great cataclysmic events tremendous natural disasters happening upon the earth like never before. Events being described here that are incredibly destructive, tremendous devastation, 
tremendously deadly and utterly terrifying for those who are experiencing such. In verse 12, he describes here not just an earthquake, but he says a great earthquake. The language is literally mega seismos. Mega seismos. The idea is an extremely mega-sized, powerful, widespread earthquake that brings tremendous destruction. It seems to me to be describing global destruction, not just a localized earthquake. There are at least four different earthquakes that will be described in these chapters ahead during the time of the tribulation. This is just the first one being described here. At least four are described. He also describes in our verses there the sun becoming black, the idea is the brilliant light of the bright sun that we have, imagine somehow global darkness. You know, the Bible talks about the darkness that came over Egypt in the Old Testament, that darkness came over the land during the time when Jesus was dying. Imagine global darkness. All of a sudden, the sun goes out or the shades pulled down by God and the sun no longer giving its light. He describes there in our verses the moon becoming blood red in color because of something that transpires it turning to red. Verse 13, he describes the stars of heaven falling to the earth like somebody was shaking a fig tree and the figs were just falling off quickly. Now that term he uses there, the stars of heaven in verse 13, it's a universal term that describes in the Greek any luminous body or any stellar body. So Likely, what it's describing is something probably like a terrifying asteroid shower, as we might refer it to, raining down upon the earth, bringing unimaginable devastation and burning on the earth. And if we can only begin to envision, consider a mighty earthquake, multiple ones, asteroids coming down in a great shower upon the earth, how that would disrupt not only the physical surface of the earth, but all the subterranean parts of our planet as well, the subterranean volcanic sources and the gases that would be spewed into the air, the, the volcanic lava being thrown up into the air, the smoke and so forth coming from under the earth and perhaps further contributing to what's being described there as well as the miserable conditions. Similar language is used in the Old Testament to describe these same events of the day of the Lord. Joel 2 says it this way, and I will show wonders in the heaven and the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. Isaiah 13, we just studied it recently on Wednesday evenings, says, see, the day of the Lord is coming, a cruel day with wrath and fierce anger to make the land desolate and to destroy the sinners within it. The stars of heaven and their constellation will not show their light. The rising sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light. Zephaniah 1.15 says it this way, That day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of devastation and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness a day I don't want to be here for, and I'm glad I won't be. Amen. A day that the Bible says will be a day like never before experienced. Verse 14, he describes it saying, the sky will be receded as a scroll 
when it's rolled up. Now, again, Isaiah 34 talks about the stars of the sky being dissolved and the heavens being rolled up like a scroll. Now, when that language is given there, some cataclysmic event apparently is going to happen that the sky is going to recede like a scroll, perhaps picturing in some way how God is making an end of all things. Again, if you've ever you know, looked at blueprints with somebody before, uh, and, and when they're done, they, right, they, they, they roll them up. And as you roll up the scroll or you roll up the blueprints, the idea is the meeting's over. We're done. Meeting's done. Events have come to a close. And perhaps as God causes the sky to recede like a scroll, it's like God in some way is indicating with humanity, I am done with your rebellion. In my care and my kindness and my mercy, I have held every atom of that planet together for human history, and things are wrapping up now. And that's it. And God in a way indicating that his mercy has been exceeded. Notice so powerful is the global and mighty earthquake and perhaps that asteroid shower that the end of verse 14 says, and every mountain and every island was moved out of its place. Notice every mountain. So we're not talking about localized devastation. This is global devastation. Every mountain and every island. And think about what's being described there. Mountains are these images in creation of majestic, mighty mountains. So they're pictures to us in physical creation of security and stability. Who's going to move a mountain? Islands in the same way. Islands in the midst of the vast oceans are creation's representation of, we might say, refuge and deliverance, right? You're lost out in the water. Oh, finally, an island. We've been saved. Refuge. And so you have these images here of security and stability and safety and refuge and deliverance. And here are these images on the earth of stability and strength and safety and security. And God's powerfully shaking it all up now. It's almost as if you can sense, I almost envision that God's saying, you think you're so stable? You think you're so secure? And it's almost in that moment as if God says, watch this. How stable is that? <laughs> How secure is all that down there on earth now? And see, the, the tragedy is mankind in our arrogance so foolishly think that we are so stable and so secure and we will always find a way to save and to deliver ourselves from anything and everything. And God is going to so powerfully shake this ball of dirt that we are floating around on in such a way, he is going to so powerfully shake this ball of dirt that all of humanity left on this planet after he removes his, his children home are going to find themselves broken and humbled in a way like never before. You know, Jesus, describing similar events in Luke 21, said there will be signs in the sun, the moon, and the stars, and on the earth distress of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, perhaps a description of tsunamis. Imagine if God shook the earth, the tsunami that would come. Men's hearts failing them from the fear and expectation of things that are coming on the earth for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And this is what John describes in the last verses here. He says, and the kings of the earth, and notice the language, the kings of the earth, great rulers, all the great men, the rich men, verse 15, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks 
of the mountains and said to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us, hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. Notice during these times when these cataclysmic events are happening, no one on the planet will be immune from experiencing the horrific, terrible things going on in God's judgments. Notice those events are going to horrify and they are going to humble everyone. It says complete equality. Every rich person, every poor person, every educated person, every uneducated person, every person who has great power and importance, every person who's just a common person, every race, every nationality, people of great power and position, the Holy Spirit's trying to describe there, people of great power and position, they cannot insulate themselves in that day. They may think they can do it now. I can insulate myself. I'm a king. I have power. I have money. And, and to some degree, maybe they can insulate themselves from certain things now, but you can't insulate yourself from the judgment of God. And he says, everyone in that day is going to be overwhelmed with fear and they're, verse 15, going to go and hide themselves in caves and in the mountains and begin to cry out. Look what they say. Fall on us. Hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. So, so terrified are they. They go into caves in the mountains and they're either trying to hide from the wrath being poured out and the judgment's happening, or they're just asking the mountains and the rocks to fall on them and kill them because they want to be able to not experience the pain and torment any longer. And they're terrified. And, and I have to point out, notice, interesting verse 16, of the wrath of the lamb. Now, think about lambs are typically pretty docile animals. What do you got to do to a lamb to get it to go into full wrath mode? You have got to have exhausted the patience of a lamb to make a lamb go into wrath mode. But again, Jesus is both the lion and the lamb, and now his wrath is being poured out. And what's amazing, and here's the tragedy of it all, is those who are still on the earth, notice, they are not trying to repent, to cry out for salvation. They're trying to still escape facing the wrath of the lamb. They're trying to escape God's wrath and God's punishment. Instead of humbly repenting and turning from their sin and their rebellion and crying out in deliverance, save us. We're sorry, forgive us. They are still in proud rebellion, resisting God's authority, even then, in their sinfulness, in their refusal to let go of their sin that they love and their rebellion against God, they still won't repent and submit. What a sad testament to show how hard and how rebellious human hearts can be. We're going to see when we get to Revelation chapter 9, verse 20 and 21, particularly, it tells us this. Let me just read it to you briefly. Revelation 9, 20 says, But the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of their works, that they should not worship demons and idols of gold and brass and stone and wood, and they did not repent of their murders and sorceries and sexual immorality and their thefts. Even undergoing all of that and more to come, they still said, no, you know what? We love our sin too much. We, we do not want to give it up. They still wouldn't repent. How scary, how hard a human heart can be refusing to repent. 
But notice when that day was happening, nobody was questioning. Verse 17 says, for the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Notice, it's the great day of his wrath. And again, God's wrath is not emotional, angry reaction. It is a just, measured, appropriate sentence of judgment. But notice in that day when those judgments are happening, nobody on the planet is anymore wondering, is this God's judgment? It's so evident then. They say, this is the great day of his wrath, and who's able to stand? The idea is, who is able to stand in resistance to God now? And the answer is, no one. All of the prior toleration of God's patience, of prior human resistance to the Lord's authority and rebelling against him, it will no longer be tolerated anymore. It will have come to a close the Bible says, woe to him who strives against his maker. See, refusing God is never wise. And resisting God is always a losing battle. Truth be told, the only ones that are truly able to stand when Jesus' wrath is being poured out is those of us who took a stand in faith for Jesus Christ before it was too late. Those are the only ones able to stand because we've been escaped from the wrath of God. 1 Thessalonians 5 describes that, how we were not appointed to suffer wrath, but to obtain salvation. And boy, oh boy, we should be really glad for that. You know, if nothing else, you may say, man, I'm having a horrible week. I've had a horrible month. I'm having a horrible season. Life is horrible. Well, look, you've escaped the wrath of God. <laughs> That's something to rejoice in, something to be grateful for, and something to give us a heart of pity for those who don't know Jesus or who continue to resist our Lord. Let's stand. Let's pray together.